Welcome to The End Game, a podcast about the positive aspects of aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I'm your host, Don Auction. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get on with today's show. I feel very fortunate today to have as my guest Raymond A. Jetson, founder of Aging While Black, a platform that explores the intersection of aging and race. An ordained minister, he has been a church pastor as well as an elected member of the Louisiana legislature and was a fellow in Harvard University's Advanced Leadership Initiative. Currently, he is the CEO of Metromorphosis, a social change nonprofit in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, that seeks to engage and convene community stakeholders, equip and develop citizens to be change agents, and change the narrative around inner-city communities. Thank you, Raymond, for carving out time from your busy schedule to sit down with me today. Don, thank you so much for the kind and generous invitation to share this space with you. I am grateful. Wonderful. So to begin with, how is the aging experience different for Black people in America? Well, I would begin by saying that the entirety of the Black experience in America has been different in any arena that you examine. And so I find it surprising that anyone would find it surprising that aging <laughs> would be any, any different. Uh, right. And so all of the elements that you see in the Black, black experience in America uh, grows with us into aging. Uh, I believe it is Laura Carstensen and uh, and some other researchers at Stanford uh, who have uh, put forth the theory uh, that both uh, advantage and disadvantage are cumulative experiences. And so ah. they gain over time so that by the time you reach the aging experience, if you started from a place of disadvantage, that disadvantage has not only remained, but very likely increased. And conversely, the disadvantage has also had a cumulative effect on the life of the individual over time. Wow, that makes perfect sense. But uh, it's not something that we think about right away. At least, well, at least I haven't. Well, so, so very often, and it's not just you, uh, my friend, by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but so very often we seem to have uh, this unusual ability to look at people in a particular situation uh, and have opinions, thoughts, evaluations, or judgment about that position without giving thought to the corresponding factors that are associated with that particular station in life. That, of course. Now, one thing I've observed, uh, it seems to me that while millions of older Americans are family caregivers, that burden seems to be much greater in black households. Is that something you would find accurate? I, I, I would find that accurate. It is um, a compelling challenge uh, and I would argue opportunity uh, in, in, in the black experience. When you look at uh, the family structure and the realities that one, uh, 
black men die earlier than black women. Secondly, the most isolated demographic in America in 2023 is African-American women over the age of 65. You also look at uh, the greatest preponderance of debilitating uh, illness or injury after the age of 65, the largest, most impacted demographic are black females. And so when you bring all of those realities together, you see a part of our community uh, that benefits from care uh, and attention. You also couple that uh, with uh, the change, let's not call it the decline, the change in the nuclear family. Uh, when I grew up as a child, I grew up next door to my great-grandmother and great-grandfather. My other great-grandmother lived a street over from me with my grandmother. Uh, and uh, my great-grandmother and great-grandfather had three generations of family members living in their ever-expanding uh, household. And so when my great-grandfather became frail, when my great-grandmother uh, became older and living by herself after the death of her husband, caregiving was never a question because she had a child, uh, one of her children in the house. She had a couple of grandchildren uh, and even uh, some aging uh, great-grandchildren who were very likely in the house with her at the same time. So caregiving was never something, I mean, it was not in our vernacular. There was no question of who's going to care for grandma. That was understood, and, and her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren all made certain that she was well uh, until she went to sleep at 98 one night and didn't wake up uh, the next morning. But that's not the reality for many families uh, in America, many of them black, uh, in 2023. You have children who have moved away, grandchildren who are with them in other parts of, 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 the, of the country. There's not this proximity. Uh, there's not this symbiotic uh, structure that, that, that historically was in place. And so now caregiving is a challenge. And you see families wrestling with how to, to negotiate uh, that. In a very real uh, experience, I have a now 90-year-old mother uh, who has lived by herself since 1984 when my father died. Uh, my mother in May of 2023 fell, hit her head, her back, uh, now has ambulatory and slight uh, cognitive decline. And so the big question is who's going to make certain that my mom is okay, uh, which becomes even greater uh, uh, challenging to, to address uh, in light of her still fierce independence uh, and wanting to navigate. And so lastly, Don, what I'll say to you is, so we see challenges being faced uh, by children, by, by the children of aging uh, black elders. We see 
uh, an expanding sandwich generation where you have uh, people who are who are trying to build a life and are, are in many instances in some of the most what should be some of the most productive years of their lives in terms of careers who now have to provide support for both parents and children. And then lastly, uh, because of just this strong matriarchal structure in so many black families where grandmothers have become caregivers for children, you now see those grandmothers uh, in large part who become frail because of debilitating injury or whatever. And so you actually have this emerging issue of younger children having to become caregivers for older uh, family members. So it's a real issue. And uh, I know in some families, the solution seems to be to institutionalize grandmother and, uh, or, or pay for a nursing home or whatever. I am assuming that if you didn't come from an affluent family to begin with, uh, it's, that's not an option. You have to be on either one uh, extreme or the other. You have to either come from affluence or be in a station of abject poverty in order to, uh, to, to, to uh, access uh, skilled nursing care if that is what's needed. Uh, because otherwise, if you have any modicum of resources, uh, then it is extremely unlikely that you will qualify for government programs. Right. These, uh, these inequalities run very deep, as, as you have said, and, and changing them is a really tall order. Where could we begin? Well, I, I think that there are uh, a, a couple of really important beginnings, uh, if you will. Uh, the first is to simply have the conversation to in a thoughtful, uh, non-adversarial, non-accusatory, non-defensive uh, uh, container, have the conversation and acknowledge that there are differences that can be identified by race and that there are, in many instances, not all, but in many instances, there are corresponding systemic factors that if not, if are not causatory, then are at least uh, correlated to some of the experiences that we see. And beginning to identify what those systemic realities are uh, and uh, be willing to talk about meaningful uh, interventions uh, to address them, both for aging Black people, but also for the huge pipeline uh, that's already begun to unload of, of aging Black people in America. So the first is being willing to have the conversation. The second is what I describe uh, as investigating the intersection. Uh, we have to, to, to be willing to look at the data. We have to be willing to disaggregate data. It's one thing to say, and it is important to note that there are 10,000 people 
uh, a day in America who are reaching the age of 65. It started some years ago, will continue until 2040. The Census Bureau has projected um, either March or May of 2034, when for the first time in its history, America will have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18. These are important things to say. But it becomes really intriguing when you start to look at those numbers in a disaggregated way and ask, how many of those folks are black? How many of those folks are, are, are living in poverty? How many of those folks are living in social isolation? What is the capacity of the service system to meet the needs uh, of those individuals? What are the barriers that are inherent that are driving these numbers? And so we need to really look at what the data says. And what the data says is, Houston, we have a problem. No kidding. I mean, we... And, and I don't think... Um... I don't think we're moving nearly fast enough. I mean, when we talk about the senior housing industry, for example, they are really good at putting up places for affluent people and really lousy at putting anything that is moderately or low priced in the market. Well, and, and, and my response to you would be housing is one of those critical issues that we are, are, are not being as thoughtful uh, and as action-oriented as, as, as we need to be. You know, I, I've shared with, with you that, that Aging While Black uh, is this community-building effort uh, that's about creating this discourse, uh, but it's resting upon three pillars. And, and the first of those pillars is what we describe as recalibrating the village. And the notion uh, that undergirds uh, recalibrating the village is that the infrastructure that supports black life in general and black aging in particular is wholly insufficient for the changes that have already begun to happen in our community. Right. And so it is inherent upon us that we are intentionally strategic in looking at what that infrastructure is and what it needs to be and what are the steps that are necessary to move in the direction of what it needs to be uh, and spend less time uh, wrangling our hands uh, at what it's not. You mentioned the three pillars, um, and, and I understand that one of them also is embracing the wisdom of elders. How do you go about tapping that wisdom? So there, there are a couple of ways. One, but we, we, we describe it as leaning into Sankofa. Uh, Sankofa is uh, a uh, West African term. Uh, which is loosely translated, making benevolent use of the path, or that it is taboo to leave anything behind. Uh, the Sankofa bird, which, which I have uh, a number of in my office, is a bird with its head turned backwards, bringing an egg from its back. 
and and so the, the 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 notion of Sankofa is how do we take the wisdom of the elders? How do we make benevolent use of our past in order to build a solid present and uh, a hopeful future? Uh, and so what is incumbent upon us is to be really thoughtful and really strategic about how we position the wisdom of the elders in our communities, in our families, in our organizations, in our institutions. I, I will give you uh, a case in point. Uh, you, you began uh, this, this conversation by introducing me uh, as the, the CEO, uh, the chief executive at Metromorphosis. Well, just a couple of months ago, uh, we went through an important shift in our organization. First of all, for the last couple of years, we have been practicing intergenerational co-leadership. And so my partner in leadership uh, is a 30-something-year-old millennial uh, who is an absolutely brilliant woman uh, who has truly been my partner in all ways. Well, in just a couple of months ago, we made an important shift. Sherita Harrison, my partner in change, became the chief executive at Metromorphosis. And I moved to the position of wisdom and longevity catalyst, a position that we created that was intended to do a few things. Uh, one, to demonstrate how you can strategically benefit from the wisdom of the elders without stifling the emergence of another generation of people who are creative, who are talented, who aspire to places uh, and opportunities to practice uh, leadership. Uh, actually, I, I, I wrote a piece uh, that was published uh, in the Chronicle of Philanthropy that talked about this notion of moving over but not out. And so one of the ways that we do is, uh, is for older leaders to move over, but not out, so that the institution, the organization, whether it is a nonprofit, whether it is a community-based organization, whether it is a house of faith, whether it is uh, an institution, intentionally creating these ways so that the organization benefits from the wisdom of the elder and the elder benefits from the progression of the organization. I learn as much as I give to this staff of this team uh, of, of, of folks who you could probably take two or three of them uh, and put together uh, and still not get to my age. <laughs> I think that's a brilliant solution. And obviously it took a lot of forethought in having uh, co-leadership in the beginning so that it wasn't an abrupt shift. But uh, yes. I, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Thanks. Spe speaking of, of metromorphosis, um, my impression of it is that it seems to be a very conscious effort to build community at the same time that you're working to change institutional practices. Is, is that a fair description? Please, please send me uh, a copy of just that slice of our conversation because <laughs> you have, uh, in a very succinct way, captured the essence of Metromorphosis' 
uh, as I have been challenged to do uh, in many conversations over the last 12 years. That is exactly it. Uh, our tagline is, is, uh, is transforming urban communities from within. And the argument that we advance is that the resources that are necessary to truly transform inner city neighborhoods in a sustainable way cannot be imported exclusively. That you have to build communities, you have to uh, show up with an asset-based perspective as opposed to a deficit-based framing. Uh, you know, inner city neighborhoods are not something that's broken that needs us to show up and fix. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, most communities are functioning exactly as they are designed to by those who exercise leverage uh, in their particular uh, situations. And so it is about identifying assets, building, nurturing people so that they own the change within their communities, but at the same time, uh, acknowledging that there are systemic factors at work and you can fix people all day. One of our uh, well-worn adages at Metromorphosis is build, not fix. Because you can fix people all day long. If you are not building different systems and structures, you're going to continue to get the same outcome. That's great. And have there been lessons that you've learned from metromorphosis that you're applying to the aging while black movement? Yes. And thank you for that. One, uh, I will say to you that there is a metromorphosis method and you uh, begin to look at them. And so we believe that everything begins with, 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 with identifying, uh, engaging and convening stakeholders. You have to know who has a stake, who does this matter to, and how can you hear from them before you begin uh, to speak. We also uh, recognize uh, that as, 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 as brilliant as we tell ourselves we are on our best days uh, or our worst, depending upon one's perspective, that it is unlikely that we're going to discover something that has never been done or tried anywhere else. And so the question becomes, how, how, how then, how then do we uh, identify and transfer to a Baton Rouge context in this instance, best practices? Uh, in addition to that, how do we build uh, the, 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 the capacity of people to act and to own and to organize themselves and how do we shift the narrative? How do we begin uh, to, to tell different, so, so that there are different stories being told about inner city neighborhoods by the people who live there and the storytellers of any community. And, and so that is, our, that is the model that we take to any community that we enter. And as a consequence, we've adopted a, a very similar approach uh, in the work with aging wildlife. Uh, one of the things that I have spent a significant amount of time uh, uh, since February when we launched aging wildlife uh, is disabusing the people uh, of the notion that I am this wise sage who has shown up with all of the answers. <laughs> I don't. 
What I know are my experiences as a 67-year-old black male, my observations at the experiences of others, having had the luxury of occupying a number of different hats, platforms, and roles in my community and in some instances around the country. I've also had the ability to take the time to look and to discover what the numbers say. Uh, and I believe that these three pillars, uh, recalibrating the village, embracing innovation and rapid, rapid change, and leaning into Sankofa are an approach to respond to some of the realities that we see in black aging and that we aspire to. Uh, and so uh, we have taken that framework and we focus, uh, first of all, on, on community building. Uh, and so we hold lots of conversations. Uh, I mean, lots of Zoom calls, lots of travel. As a matter of fact, I spent a large part of my morning uh, this morning altering uh, the second leg of a trip to Denver from from coming back to Baton Rouge to now going to Chicago and then coming back to Baton Rouge. And so it's it's lots of conversations with people to hear what they think about this issue, to understand their place uh, in this issue, uh, and to offer to them an opportunity to be a part of a community that wants to explore this intersection and uh, look at what are policy-driven or people-driven responses. What are those things that require the, the, the systemic uh, strategic action on systems and structures? And then what are those things that we just need people to do differently? And how can we agree upon those uh, and begin to advance both the policy-driven and people-driven uh, interventions? You don't take on the small tasks, do you? <laughs> so uh, for the <laughs> longest, uh, um, I, I would, uh, when, when, when Twitter was Twitter, uh, and long before, you know, the episode that, that, that became X uh, began to happen, uh, I would tweet on a daily basis, what will you do today that will matter 20 years from now? And I would share with folks in, in, in absolutely no intent of being self-aggrandizing or overvaluing myself. But I wake up every day trying to live the answer to that question. I have been blessed beyond measure. Uh, I mean, I, I, I grew up in a neighborhood uh, here uh, that not many people would have uh, projected out the the path that that I've been on. I, I, you, when when I started elementary school at a, uh, a segregated uh, elementary school where the books that I got had somebody else's name from another school in them, uh, it would have been hard to imagine uh, me having an opportunity to do a two year fellowship in advanced leadership at Harvard. That, that just didn't, that was not a straight line uh, from, from where I began. And so I've been, I've been immeasurably blessed. But with that, Don, becomes a responsibility. 
a responsibility to my family, a responsibility to my community, a responsibility to people who look like me, and a responsibility to people who actually care that we get this thing right uh, here in America uh, and, and in the world. Uh, I, I, I will say, lastly, in this line, my dad died at 54. And I didn't understand how young he was until I celebrated or observed, should I say, my 54th birthday. And there are a whole lot of mornings since my 54th birthday that I wake up with what can only be described as survivor's guilt. Why, why, why am I living to 67? What is it about me that allowed me to have 13 more years than my dad. And to waste that with trivial matters or divisive things would, in my opinion, be the ultimate insult to the legacy of my dad. Great answer. What, what can allies do to help the Aging While Black movement? First, they can recognize that aging while black is not a black thing. The community that is being built uh, is not one that is that is that is all black. Uh, it, it because the aging space and the infrastructure that supports black life is not exclusively black. And when we look at the realities that are being experienced by black elders in America, many of those in proximity to those experiences are not black. And so it's important that, that, that we understand that this is an open and inviting conversation. Uh, it centers black elders without devaluing the contributions of anyone else. When we are not going to apologize for loving and being concerned with the experiences of black elders, while at the same time, we are not going to be uh, discriminatory and dismissive of anybody who shows up with a sincere, so what can I do? Where, where do I fit in this? Uh, now, I will tell you the answer will always be, I don't know, let's talk about it. <laughs> let's okay. talk about it. So what do you do? What, 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 what? What assets do you bring? What aspect of this interest you? Uh, you know, we, we are fortunate. Uh, Aging While Black is fortunate that, that, that we will have a partnership with uh, the American Society on Aging at their On Aging 2024. Uh, we'll be a featured partner. There will be a Aging While Black stage. Uh, there's an Aging While Black track uh, of presentations that will be unfolding uh, over the course uh, of that week. And one of the most important outcomes for us during that weekend on aging and in the time leading up to this is saying to all of those folks who are active uh, in the aging space that this is not just a black thing. Raymond Jetson, thank you so much for being the guest today on The Endgame, and thank you for sharing your experiences and insights with us. 
Much appreciated. Thank you very much, Don. It's a pleasure to share this space with you. Uh, I appreciate it greatly. And you can learn more about Raymond Jetson and Aging While Black at the website, agingwhileblack.org. Agingwhileblack.co.co. C-O. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter, The Endgame, at theendgame.substack.com. I'm Don Auction, wishing you all the best in aging with grace, with joy, and with purpose. I hope you'll join us for future programs here at The Endgame.